0: Welcome to our special Christmas episode of Mainly History. For many of us this year, foregoing plans involving travel and big gatherings, it might feel like Christmas is canceled. In that spirit, today's show features a discussion about the time that Puritans on both sides of the Atlantic, but especially New England, did their best to officially cancel Christmas. Why did they do that? And did they succeed? Our guest, Steven Nissenbaum, became the go-to historian for this topic in the 90s, so I'm taking the liberty of putting Professor Christmas to the test. Later in the show, he'll have the opportunity to see if he can pick out the real Puritan complaints about the holiday from my Yuletide deep fakes. Can the King of Christmas keep his throne? Was I able to edit out all the times his dog entered the room and barked? There are 12 days of Christmas, but not 12 days of opening theme music. So let's do this. My guest today is Professor Stephen Nissenbaum, Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts and among the great authorities on the history of Christmas. Stephen, welcome to Mainly History.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: It is the pleasure is is all is all mine. The Battle for Christmas is, in fact, one of my favorite works of of social history, full stop. And so it's it's a real pleasure to speak with you. Your scholarship on Christmas, The Battle for Christmas, A Cultural History of America's Most Cherished Holiday, is mostly about the rise of the familiar American creation with Santa and all the capitalist trimmings from Christmas cards to trees and gifts that popped up in the early 19th century. Now, our audience may be familiar with a so-called war on Christmas, a shadowy allegation made usually by Christians of a certain political bent that secularists today and a host of shadowy forces are trying to take Christ out of Christmas or cancel the holiday. But what we're gonna be talking about today is an entirely different situation that arose in the 1600s when many New England colonists, including some in Maine, did their best to in fact cancel Christmas, foes of Christmas today are most commonly found in Hallmark movies or in the form of jaded business executives who schedule overtime on the holiday or jilted lovers who have forgotten the true meaning of Christmas. But who were these New Englanders who were so against Christmas in the colonial period?
1: Well, the short answer to that, of course, is that they were Puritans. And uh, the very name actually leads to a way of explaining it, Uh, they were called Puritans originally by their enemies, and then they appropriated this insult and began to call themselves Puritans. And what it amounted to is that they were trying to purify uh, the Church of England, the established church, of all of its remaining pagan and Roman Catholic trimmings, which they felt were not really Christian, but were a part of the development of Christianity that had nothing to do with what Jesus and his apostles and the early church fathers uh, really had in mind. And so they purified it. And one of the things that they pure, wanted to purify was all this menage of saints' days, saints' days, which were really just days that you could take off. And and one of those saints' days, in fact, not a saints' day, but, but uh, the day of the savior himself uh, was Christmas. They felt that uh, Christmas was itself something that was not part of the original church uh, that Jesus, the Christ founded.
0: So if I may ask, this seems counterintuitive, right? The, you would think that the, the Puritans who were so devoted to, uh, to Christ and a more, a more, austere uh, Christianity that was devoted only, uh, only to their Savior right. would be exceptionally pleased at celebrating Christ's birth in human form.
1: Yes, well, they had a good answer to that objection, and that answer was that if God had intended, or Jesus himself had intended for his birthday uh, to be celebrated, then there would have been some indication of that in the Bible in the New Testament, in the Gospels, which tell the story of the life of Jesus. And in fact, you can search through the Gospels and you'll never find a reference to the time of year or to the season uh, at which that birth was to have taken place. And so they said, and almost verbatim, uh, if God had intended for the birth of his only begotten son to be celebrated, surely he would have provided some clue as to what time of year and indeed what what day uh, it, it should be celebrated on.
0: I'm glad you bring this up. My students. 21st century residents as they are, they, they sometimes will claim that the, the Puritans were not rational or something. I go, no, if, if you look at a Puritan sermon, there's footnotes, there's everything. The Puritans were nothing if not yes. rational and heavily researched in everything that they argued.
1: Yes, it, em- empirical evidence as well as biblical evidence. Absolutely.
0: Speaking of then this Christmas holiday, which the Puritans did not approve of, uh, if you could take us back, uh, the, the first Puritans in the in the late sixteenth century in Elizabethan England, uh, if a Puritan was strolling about uh, in an English town during the Christmas holiday, what would he or she see going on that made up how Christmas was celebrated at this time?
1: Yes, that leads really to the second objection that the Puritans had uh, to celebrating Christmas. Not the theological rejection that I've just been, you've been inquiring about, but rather the actual behavior of people at Christmas time, not just on Christmas day, but during the whole season of the year. Because it turns out that the way most people celebrated Christmas was not in a pious devotional fashion they didn't spend the day in church, they didn't spend the day in prayer. Uh, What most people did on Christmas and during the whole Christmas season was in fact to act rowdy, to let off steam. There was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of eating, there was in fact, at its extreme, there was a lot of fornication going on at the season. And I have to explain, that was the case because of seasonality itself because in a largely agricultural society where seasons really mattered a lot, uh, uh, late December was a special time, uh, say in England. And it was a special time because uh, the hard work of the year all the rest of the year was temporarily over, at least for males. The harvest was an extremely busy time of year where you just had to spend full time getting everything in. And then the post-harvest season, you had to kind of like put it to bed, you had to work very hard to prepare for the winter. And as soon as that was done, and that would have happened, you know, anytime from late November to mid-December, what happened then was that people, at least men, didn't really have to work. It was their single season of leisure and not only was it a season in which they were permitted not to work but it was a season in which there was plenty of food and drink to be had just because this had been the end of the harvest so everything was now fresh everything was now new i'll specify two things in fact uh, that that were great at this time of year one of them was meat this was the only time of year when it was possible for most people to eat fresh meat because you, nobody would slaughter an animal during the summer because it was hot and the, the meat would rot. The only way to preserve it was by pickling it or salting it and it just wasn't the same thing. But in December, it was a good time to slaughter the animals. In fact, a, a note here, one of the things that about a lot recorded themselves as having done on Christmas Day was going out and killing pigs. And that was the, the, <laughs> not about Christmas. It was about that this was a good time of year for everybody, Jordan or non Puritan, to, to produce meat. So at any rate, there was plenty of fresh meat available. And the equivalent of that with, was alcohol, because mm-hmm. this was the time of year when the new beer would have come in. And in England, it would be mostly beer, uh, not wine. But the, the fresh ale, the good stuff uh, was really ready exactly at the same time of year uh, as the fresh meat was ready. So what you had then is a combination of leisure time and plenty of stuff. And so this season became a season of, let's say, overconsumption. It was a season that people felt able to not only relax, but to celebrate, and that celebration often became very, very rowdy. It became re- revelry, could turn into rowdiness. The Puritans in their writings about Christmas spent as much time talking about that as they did talking about the theological reasons that there, that Christmas should not be celebrated. That They talked about how this season. Um, let me paraphrase what one of the most famous New England Puritan ministers himself said. And that was Cotton Mather, famous from the Salem Witch Trials and yes. uh, a very important uh, clergyman in, in uh, late 17th and early 18th century Massachusetts. And he basically said that the entire, for most people, that the entire season consisted of nothing but heavy drinking gambling uh, sexual aggressiveness it's interesting because the people would would roam around begging for alcohol begging for food begging for money of uh, largely from of people who were more prosperous than they were and th- they felt that they had a right to demand this stuff and a lot of the uh, kind of Christmas wassail songs are in fact begging songs that come from that tradition. And we should that, add uh, that
0: not just the Puritans, yeah. but you're right to point out that it was also the upper class, uh, both in England and then eventually the United States, who also objected to some of these aggressive uh, demands for, uh, for handouts, yeah. for gifts and generosity, and, and yeah. this, this rowdy sil- violence as well.
1: That's true. I mean, because uh, the other side of the the, the wassail songs that we all know, I guess, even to this day, about God bless you, you you know, may you have a great new year, those were the promises if their demands were met. And what only a few remaining records of wassail songs have is the other side of that, which is the threat, that if you don't give us what we want, We will do damage. Uh, They would threaten, uh, one of the Wassel songs says, if you don't get us what we want, we're going to knock you all down. We're going to knock down the door. We're going to knock down your butler. We're going to invade your house. Uh, Now, I don't think that that probably happened a lot, but the threat was always there. And so a lot depended on the reaction of the um, uh, prosperous uh, landed gentleman whom these demands were being made, he kind of realized that if he wanted his, and these people may very well have been his tenants, or or just the poor people who lived in his neighborhood, and he depended on their goodwill for the rest of the year to do work that would ultimately benefit him economically. And so this landed gentleman would have to say to himself, I don't really want to let them into my house. I don't want to give them my best stuff, but perhaps I better do that in return for ensuring their goodwill the the rest of the year. And so that is probably the reason that these promises of goodwill on the part of the wassailers were almost invariably joined with threats.
0: My favorite story of rowdy teens in colonial America comes from Cotton Mather's diary. And in the, it was in the, Oh gosh, I want to say the early 1720s in Boston. Yeah. And he complains that there's a bunch of rowdy teens who have taken wood from his woodpile and used wow. it to club unwary passersby in these street fights. And then he says, wow. and this gang of teens stood outside my window all night singing, Body songs and I couldn't sleep (laughs) and this was around the Christmas season.
1: I'd forgotten that one. And in fact, you know, Cotton Mather is a very interesting example of this because he was so disturbed. I mean, both as a person and you're reporting an incident where this actually happened to him, uh, but he also talked about it as something that went on in the larger society. And he was very worried about it. I remember one year, he commented that uh, the young people uh, in Boston were gathering to have dancing and that, you know, dancing very easily led to sex. And ma- right. Cotton Mather made that point a lot, that there was, you know, that was fornication going on at this time of year. And so, and so Cotton Mather really disapproved of this. And this is what I think is interesting uh, uh, about it. He actually reached the point of saying, if only people celebrated this holiday uh, in a devout way, it would be acceptable. It wouldn't be needed. God never asked that the nativity of his son Jesus be celebrated. Uh, So it really is a kind of add-on that was made by first the pagans who converted and then by the Catholic Church itself. But at least it wouldn't do any harm. And so right. he basically paved the way for the reintroduction of Christmas into New England, if only it would not be done in the kind of fashion that, that we've been talking about.
0: In the spirit of doing no harm, we should, in fairness to the Puritans, also point out there was, there was a real strain of anti-Christmas literature, especially uh, on the English side of the Atlantic that emphasized how it impoverished poor people. There were some anti-Christmas publications that even had these sort of allegorical dialogues and plays and all kinds Mm. of stuff. One of the things that the Puritans like to point out is that there were these poor people who ate all their food or spent all their money for Christmas and then suffered the whole year round and that was one of their favorite talking points to appeal to perhaps less devout audiences than themselves to try and make their point. No, yeah, I've never that, seen that in that, the, the New England colonies, but I've definitely seen it in England. Shifting our gaze to 17th century New England where the Puritans held most of the political power, what steps did they take to curb Christmas keeping?
1: Well, the answer to that is very, very simple and it applies to Massachusetts, and of course, Maine uh, would have been part of that at the time. They made the celebration of Christmas illegal for about a 30 year period from the mid 1650s uh, through to the mid 1680s. They made it, it would be hard to call it a real criminal offense. It would be more like, you'd be subject to a five shilling fine the first time you were caught, and then it would go up. It's sort of like a speeding ticket today. It wasn't like they were being threatened with death or, or imprisonment, uh, but it was illegal. It, technically, it was illegal. To, to what degree that was enforced, it's a little unclear. There are a couple of instances that I found where people were actually charged with this, but mostly it was just a way of saying, if you do it, you've got to know, that you know, <laughs> the police will come after you. That the minister will come after you. And in fact, probably it was the minister who would have uh, read them out in in the meeting house uh, during church services. Um, but so uh, that they would have tried to maintain that past the mid 1680s, except that at that time, political things were happening between New England and Old England, and. The English king basically withdrew the charter by which Massachusetts had been governed since 1630, when it was formally uh, settled. And as part of the way that New England was trying to protect itself and protect its, uh, some of its traditional liberties, they uh, nullified that law. But that's the simple answer to the question. They made it illegal.
0: That's a good one was this law popular or did you find significant evidence of Uh, resistance or disobedience?
1: uh, There's one incident that could be a good answer to your question and that is picking up from the loss of Massachusetts charter in the mid-1680s. There was a period of time when the Puritans no longer had any uh, the legal power that they had had previously. And so there was a three-year period, I believe it was from 1688 to 1691, uh, during which uh, Christmas did get celebrated. And there's lots of evidences that in fact, people took advantage of it and went out on the streets and did all the things that the Puritans had really uh, disapproved of. Another example of this is from a very different kind of source. And that source is almanacs, because Mm. uh, New England was publishing almanacs from almost the very beginning every year. Farmers used them for various purposes. And I went through, when I was doing the research for this part of my book, I went through... Every almanac that I could find, it was easy for me to do it because all I had to do was turn to the page in December of, of every year. And I would, what I was measuring was what happened, how did the almanacs describe December 25th? And with only, I think, a single exception, before this period of 1688 to 1691, December 25th was never listed as Christmas, it was just, it could have been just some other kind of any any kind of day. They would predict the weather, but no notion of Christmas until 1688, 1691, when suddenly some uh, printers took advantage of this new freedom that they had and they immediately put in Christmas day. And even afterwards, speaking of almanacs, in the early 1700s, I remember coming across one almanac published in New England I think it was in the 17 around 1720 in which right across the days from December 21st to December 26th the printer had put in for those days do not let your children or servants run abroad at night ah and it was like he was saying I will not recognize Christmas, but I am recognizing (laughs) what the way people in New England, many too many people in New England uh, are inclined to do so. And that is they let their children and their servants uh, run abroad. Run abroad really means joining little bands, going house to house, uh, doing wassailing. And of course it was your servants who were the lower classes and your children who were actually lumped in with the servants because to use a bit of social history here, uh, children were used to do menial work in their households or they were sometimes sent out to other households to become their servants. So children and servants really represented what you might call the underclass. And here was this one lovely almanac entry saying, don't let your servants join these bands and go around wassailing at night. So it suggests not only that the Puritans, even after 1700, continued to resist the, the reintroduction of Christmas, but also it seems it, it's become clear uh, that other people were continuing to do it. They were, the children and servants uh, were, in fact, going around wassailing.
0: I have another question for you. I'm hoping that you would be so kind as to to weigh in on a mini historiographical dispute about the the Puritan strategy of, of targeting Christmas. And Christopher Durston, who sadly is no longer with us, he was one of the foremost historians of the kind of what we what you call the Puritan culture war uh, in Old England, in particular in the 17th century, when the Puritan dominated parliamentarian side won the English Civil Wars, took control of England, and they outlawed Christmas as, and tried to bring about a godly Reformation. And Durston argued that the Puritans overreached and they needlessly alienated potential allies by targeting a popular holiday like Christmas that was just a bit of harmless mm-hmm. fun. So, my perspective in my own research on it, which admittedly was, was never published being yet a, a humble, a, a more humble uh, MA thesis. And yet, uh, having looked at all the, the literature, I thought that maybe it really, if we're being sympathetic to the Puritans, that it made sense that uh, Christmas by the mid 17th century had become the sort of flagship holiday of this old corrupt church establishment wow. that they needed to destroy if they were really going to achieve their goal of a fully reformed church and society. And so even yeah. though it was an uphill battle trying to tear down all the, all the mistletoe and the, the holly, so to speak, and yet it was one that they, they kind of had to, to fight. Uh, and what is your take on yeah, that?
1: I, yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. It clearly can be argued both ways and we'll never know because we know that they did In England, make Christmas illegal during the uh, Commonwealth period under Oliver Cromwell. But seems to me that, uh, as you say, you know, Christmas was the most popular holiday. It was this; uh, it carried this great symbolic uh, importance, and therefore, uh, it really made sense—a lot of sense—politically for the Puritans to tackle that uh, holiday, especially because if they could win on that, then it would be easier to win on other things. But uh, as I remember, there were some very serious episodes in England uh, during the uh, 1650s. Uh, You will know this, I think, Ian. There was a a, a riot uh, in which uh, actually somebody was killed. Uh, Yes. Was it in Exeter?
0: There were were large-scale Christmas riots in, I want to say, uh, it was 1647 and 1648, and especially in Kent, oh, okay. which was a hotbed of, yeah, of sympathy it. for the soon-to-be-executed king, Charles the, the yeah. I. Right. And so it is true that old England, having, of course, a civil war as well, uh, technically two of them, it, it was definitely yeah. the scene of much more large-scale pro-Christmas rioting as well as right. state-sanctioned suppression. Uh, in a way right. that the New England Puritans never really tried to get violent and coercive in the way that uh, that Parliament did when it was dominated yeah. by the, the Puritans.
1: Yeah, so of course, as, as as you know, the inhabitants, the white inhabitants of New England during this period were kind of self-selected. So that even yes. though there was a lot of you know, Christmas revelry went on. Still, it was not like in England where the majority of people, <laughs> the great majority of people out in the countryside would would, would not have been uh, Puritans. And so there was a much greater, if, if you were running British society, if you were a, a ruler, it, you would have a harder job dealing with Christmas in England that then you would have even in New England.
0: That's a good point. And all of this was to say that at least that, uh, and I say this as a, a lover of, of Christmas past and present, a variety of features. But uh, to me, it seems unfair to the Puritans to suggest that they were bah humbugging Christmas for kind of casual reasons that they hadn't thought through or just that they disliked yeah, fun. Right. And even though yeah. as we are going to get to, yeah the Puritans provide some amazing moral scolding sermons for us to have fun at uh, with. Nevertheless, for them, that this was, at times, deadly serious.
1: Yeah, it was deadly serious. And they felt that Christmas was not just a symbolic issue, but but a real issue in itself. Since, um, for the Puritans, a purified church and that's what they were trying to do was to create a purified church along with a purified society was really uh, of existential import
0: absolutely now we're going to move on to a test of your skills of significantly less existential import so but i don't have cho- bet on that <laughs> <laughs> so i have crafted for all of our audience's pleasure i have chosen 3 uh, amazing uh, real life puritan fire and brimstone criticisms of christmas and i have also crafted three sophisticated deep fakes of my own as the the tech folk would say and so what we're going to ask you to do is to see if you can sniff out the the real uh, criticism of christmas in these cases are you ready
1: Ah, uh, yes, I'm ready.
0: Okay. So as I said, I'm going to flip a coin here to decide if I'm reading the fake or the real one first. So here we go. That was a, that was a fake flip
1: flip of the coin, I'll bet.
0: That's right. Clearly, this is all, it's all fake. The fix yeah. is in.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So okay. just for, the, for reference, heads of a face, that means it's fake and tails is T for true. So that's how I decided and mm-hmm. put uh. a lot of thought into this production, people. All right, here we go. Here they are. First, the first statement, <clears throat> if Christ were to return among us on the day we, with much hypocrisy, celebrate his birth with much chambering, wantonness, and devilish excess, I tremble that our unworthiness would drive him from our wicked land. All right, that's option number one. Here's option two, if Turks and infidels behold our bacchanalian Christmas extravagancies, Would they not think our savior to be a glutton, an epicure, a wine bibber? Thus do we even crucify our blessed savior in his very cradle. All right, so option one or option two is the fake.
1: Yeah, I mean, option one uh, has a lot of rhetoric that's very familiar to me, but option two sounds like it probably is the right one.
0: All right, so you're saying option two is the real one?
1: Yes, because it doesn't sound as real on the surface of it. And it's uh, very... Uh, all right.
0: You're, you're good. good. You're very good. That, uh, so the, you correctly identified the, the, the real option in this first couplet. That was William Prynne, the English author of the 1632 masterpiece, Histriomastics, The Player's Scourge, uh-huh. or Actor's Tragedy. He uh. was... In real life, he was a, he was a lawyer who, this book went to press, and between the time he finished it and then the time it went to press, the queen and her daughters appeared in a Christmas play for the first time ever, mm-hmm. and his book said that any women who appeared on the stage in Christmas plays mm-hmm. were little better than prostitutes, and so... Right. William Prynne was hauled before the, the Star Chamber. His histriomastics was burned in front of his face and his ears were cropped. Thus did but he that pay. Was
1: actually, that was could, you could call that a humane punishment. Oh, gosh. Uh, given the seriousness of, 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 of,
0: of the event yeah. uh,
1: that, and, that you're describing.
0: <laughs> and he Prynne did not pull any punches either. I mean, he even had uh, I think his index had uh, like where if you looked for female actors, it said, like, for this, go look uh, and look under the the title, like prostitutes or something like that, like yeah. in the antics instead, I mean, yeah. he, I mean, uh, <laughs> this was, he, he may have known that the queen was going to do
1: this, or at least, you know, could, could be doing this. And that um, he, that was an extremely provocative, you know, it could have been taken as a, as a personal Uh, attack on the queen, calling her a prostitute.
0: Oh yes, oh yes, Um, so I believe he eventually was branded on his cheeks Uh, with an uh, S and an L for seditious libel, but that was after a second offense.
1: Right, it's interesting because the Puritans tended to, uh, when they wanted to punish people, they did so by making them feel ashamed, by cropping off of the ears means that for the rest of his life that everybody every time he encountered somebody that he was going to know that they were looking at him in this funny way and so he was you know that's a very serious punishment. I I take it back when I say that that was humane Um, because uh, this was something that was going to have to unlike a prison sentence say this was something that was going to be with him for the rest of his life. Go
0: ahead. All right, all right, next round, here we go. All right, flipping the coin so you don't second guess yourself. Find the real one, here's option one. Christmas mongers do not serve God but their own bellies, feeding them with anti-Christ mass pies and famish their souls and perish eternally. Now here's option two. These Christmas idolaters honor heathen festival days and the fires for preparing their unholy feasts pale before the eternal fire that awaits them.
1: Yes, I would have to say that option two, once again, is the real one. Uh, option one just sounded wrong to me.
0: Aha! I can't remember exactly. I faked you.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, Yes. you can crop my ears now.
0: <laughs> the real one, Surprise, option please. one is, in your defense, it was an English source and not an American one, Samuel Chidley, a Christian plea against Christmas, 1656. Mm. Samuel and his mother, Catherine Chidley, uh, were active levelers, meaning uh, Ah, arguing for sort of more political equality, and they agitated for extending religious toleration as well as suffrage, broader suffrage.
1: Yeah.
0: In that's that's
1: very interesting because one of the reasons that it um, sounded fake to me was that it went further than any New England attack on Christmas that I can remember. Can you read that one again? Sure, because it's really quite interesting. It it, it, it does seem to ha- it seem to have some political import. Uh, that strike me as possible in New England. Go ahead.
0: Could and the, the insult, he called them in the longer piece, he calls them mass mongers all the time. Uh, and he says uh, these mass mongers who solemnize the mass. But his, the real line is Christmas mongers do not serve God, but their own bellies, feeding them with anti-Christmas pies and famish their souls and perish eternally. All right. Uh, thank you. <laughs> So we'll have the tiebreaker to see if you can reclaim your your (laughs) title here. So I'm gonna flip my coin of randomness again. Uh, Oh, right, okay. Christ mass, tis only Pope's mass and devil's mass if we speak truth. And option two, why should Protestants own anything which has the name of mass in it? How unsuitable it is to join Christ and mass together.
1: That's a toughie. Um, They both could be real. Uh, I would say that number one is the truth and number two is the fake.
0: Oh, I am the master Christmas criticism deep faker, it seems. This was, in fairness, Uh these were pretty close. I was worried. I tried to pick uh, Mm -hmm. a real one without too many, you know, uh, florid old passages. Uh, So the, the real quote, the second one, why should Protestants own anything? In it is from Increase Mather, a testimony against several profane and superstitious customs, uh, which he published in I the. Wish I've read. Yes. And so I, I thought, like, oh, uh, Steve is definitely going to get this one. I better get a really, uh, a really sophisticated close fake in there to see if I could throw him <laughs> off.
1: Well, I, I have read that, uh, obviously. But uh, in my defense, I'll just say uh, when I did this work was like. Uh, 30 years ago, so, uh, uh, but, but having lost uh, two out of three, I I've really got to uh, pass on the mastership to you, Ian Sachsen. Wow, that, that is... is good, good, to- good time for you to replace me and get that master's thesis
0: published. <laughs> that is high praise. That is high praise. Uh, that, is, that is the best gift that I have yet received this season. Awesome, thank you for playing. Okay, so uh, You're moving. <laughs> it was. It was not my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should add, Increase Mather is Cotton Mather's father, father. Uh, for those folks keeping score at home. Uh, he also was criticizing uh, cards, dicing, dancing, and other things of yeah. that nature. So speaking of, uh, you, you still sit atop the throne of, of the Christmas history biz. And so I, I want to ask you about your, your current projects. Well, but first, I I, 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 on, I
1: I don't mind being dethroned as long as I don't get executed like uh, your English <laughs> king in 1649. <laughs> go ahead, Very go fair. Ahead.
0: So I do want to know, famous uh, historians such as yourself, perhaps less dramatically, right? But like famous musicians, Artists sometimes get well-known for early work, even though they've moved on to other projects. And so I'm thinking the, the band Counting Crows famously hate having to play the song Mr. Jones. They're always asked at right. all their concerts, your greatest right. hits are on the, uh, if I may, the, the Salem Witch Trials uh, with Paul Boyer and the, the Battle for Christmas. And yeah. like, like other talented performers and artists, you too have have moved on. So can I ask, First of all, are you asked to provide more Christmas commentary or more Salem witchcraft commentary these days?
1: I think more Christmas these days. It's, um, it's funny because these, the two books that, I, that I've written that you've just named are both about seasons. So the Salem witch trials, I used to get asked to, for interviews every Halloween season, you know, every October. Because that was, you know, October. Halloween is the night when witches run wild, and of course, Christmas season. Uh, it's been Christmas lately. Although I have to say uh, that every year, as of late, uh, I've gotten, I think, fewer and fewer requests for um, in- interviews or answering questions, uh, and I'm kind of grateful for that. Um, <laughs> most of me, most. I'm grateful for that because two things I mean one is that it it does become tiring and a little bit emotionally draining I hope it's okay for me to say this to give interviews you know to journalists never knowing what use they're going to make of what I have to say and sometimes I'm absolutely delighted with how Perceptive and how, 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 what good use they've made of what I've said. But much of the time, it 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 um it's sort of like gross oversimplifications. And I know that the next year I'm going to get asked the same question over and over. And it's unlike a book that you publish where it's on the record. It's like ah, uh, Groundhog well, Day, I guess. Um, every every. You know, I hadn't thought of this before, but that every Christmas I'll get asked the same questions and I'll be asked the same questions next Christmas and it's as if nothing had ever happened. And so it becomes tiresome and and a little bit emotionally draining. Plus, the fact is that this book got published in 1996 and I did most of the work for it a few years earlier than that. And so I've forgotten much of what I once knew and so today here you know you are much more up on the subject than I am I'm working now from an increasingly desperate effort to keep those memories of what I said intact but what I've said sometimes people who have interviewed me uh, and on those rare occasions when they've actually read some of what I've written and I will say to them book, when you ask me these questions, remember that you've read my book more recently than I have. (laughs) Um, uh, On the other hand, I also have to say that because of vanity that I'll never lose, that I regret the requests for interviews have begun to get thinner and and, and thinner. There was a real flurry back uh, oh about 15 years ago when, to get back to something you said at the very beginning of this interview, when the war on Christmas
0: the, mm-hmm. became
1: a big thing. And a lot of right-wing commentators, they were going after people who, were, who looked forward to a more multicultural, diverse society by saying, let's stop saying Merry Christmas, let's, you know, let's take the church out of it. And so at that time I was getting a lot of attention because I had published a book before this ever happened called the Battle, Against, the Battle for Christmas. And that sounded a lot like The War for Christmas. And so I became very popular <laughs> at that time. That may have been the high point of it. Uh,
0: Thank you for for sharing that honest perspective, because I was really, I'm always interested to hear from people who, you know, you can only... Like most people, you have, most people have one or two like big hits, uh, even if the rest of their, their work is, is really solid. And so this is where if yeah. I was, I'm no musician, but if I had, if I was a one hit wonder, yeah. the difference between you and everybody else is you have the one hit. But I always wonder if people thinking about like, you know, some musicians talk about playing the hits Uh, And then sort of just mentally thinking about what they're going to have for dinner and not even being aware of what they're doing up there. And so like how how that felt, uh, how that felt for you. Right. Even though you bring Elvis's star power to this interview,
1: this interview by no means feels like late
0: career Elvis drunkenly slurring his way through a sloppy performance of the hits. And so we're very (laughs) grateful for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, but, you know, uh, thank you. But, you know, I wonder, speaking now from myself, wondering about these musicians that you're referring to, how they would feel or how they would have felt if in fact people stopped asking them uh, to play Mm -hmm. their greatest hits. I can't answer that question, but, you know, it's, they're human beings too. It's true, it's true. They have their vanity too. And, you know, once you, once you've experienced the sort of flurry of attention, you may get sick and tired of it, but you also
0: depend on it. The continued popularity of your work is, I think, a great reminder. Christmas has never been uh, entirely owned by one group of celebrants, right? Which you can argue it's The source of its success is it's such a malleable holiday with elements of pagan religion, of Christian belief, of very worldly, other sort of deeper cultural needs. If anything that's eternal about it is this many faceted nature of it, you know, the battle itself. And it's
1: always been a battle. It's a battle now, you know, the war on Christmas. I mean, it's always been a battle because of the season at which it was, arbitrarily placed by the Roman church in the year 395 of the common era, because what the church did at that time was to appropriate an existing holiday of rowdy behavior, drinking and eating and, 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 and so on, uh, that because the, they put it on that kind of a day, they ensured that they would get a lot of people celebrating it. It was easy you could Christianize, you could convert the people by saying, yeah, you can keep doing pretty much what you've always been doing, but we're just going to now call it uh, Christmas, a celebration of the birth of, of the Lord. But by choosing to place the celebration of Christ's nativity on December 25th, uh, in return for getting a lot of popular observance of it, the church, I would argue, Gave up its ability to completely control how Christmas was celebrated, and that there was too much in the season that was independent of Christ. That I think that I think I even put it this way somewhere in my book that Christmas became a very difficult holiday to Christianize. And and so there have always been people who've wanted to celebrate it as Christ's Mass but they're, I don't think that they have ever been in control of the way people have celebrated the season. Uh, it's such a powerful season, even now that the seasonality of, 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 our, of our lives has, has really diminished. And yet uh, Christmas has still <laughs> become a holiday of overconsumption and of overdoing. It's always gonna be a struggle, a war, a battle. Yeah.
0: very true. My last question for you is that you, as, as you said to me uh, before we, we had this conversation, that you have moved on and that you, you have a, a new interest that you've been working on. You are now uh, a scholar of Handel and his, his work. Am I correct?
1: You are correct. Yeah. I took my retirement as a kind of permission to change fields, as it were, music was always my earliest interest. I, it's remained a very deep interest. And I, if I'd had more talent, I would have pursued it professionally. I tried to be a composer when I was in my teens and I gave that up. And so now I'm returning to it through the work of George Frederick Handel, the composer of Messiah and 30 odd other oratorios as well as a whole lot of operas and other kinds of music. So I've returned to music, but I'm able to use my skills as a historian to bring to bear on that. So I've become an active member of the American Handel Society. I've had several essays that I've written that I've delivered as papers published in the Handel annual, the Handel Jahrbuch, published every year in in Germany. Uh, I was going to ask where our
0: listeners could find that. So now we know, the Handel Jahrbuch.
1: Handel Jahrbuch, Um, I'm preparing a paper for delivery in Germany this coming June, if there is going to be a a meeting of the German Handel Society. If it can be done, uh, I'm hoping to go to Germany, to that, the city, actually not just the city in which he was born, which is Halle, but actually it's in the house that Handel was born and raised. It's the Handel House uh, that now is the site of the major German Handel organization. And so it's there in Handel's own house uh, that I'm hoping to give this paper early June, God willing.
0: Here is hoping that June finds you in the Handel the house in, yep. uh, in good spirits and in good health. Stephen Nissenbaum. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's, it's a real honor.
0: that's our show. Join us next time as we open the new year with pirates. Then I'll be making the transition from avoiding excess Christmas wordplay to trying to avoid too many nautical expressions and metaphors. Can I do it? Till then, follow us on Twitter at Mainly History so you're not left behind, or marooned, if you will. Thanks for listening. This is Mainly History.